you know, deep down somewhere within us, we don't like hearing this and we want to scribble this out and change it. If God is God, then acknowledge him. If God is God, then pray a prayer and, and maybe church on Sunday and maybe even a Bible study midweek, but not change your life. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part one of Will You Follow the One True God? A study of 1 Kings 18 with Pastor Paul Twiss. Let's level with each other. If you're listening to these sermons on radio, you've listened to others as well, and almost all of them talk about making a decision for Christ for eternity. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you've done it more than once to trust Jesus for eternity in heaven. But what about the daily decisions of your life? Who are you going to for guidance? In this two-part series, Pastor Paul tells us that deciding to trust the one true God is not just for the day you die, but for every day that you live. Let's listen to part one of Will You Follow the One True God? 16.5 billion in a lifetime, 200,000 every year, 612 every day, 25 every hour. On average, one every two minutes. Some are big and many are small, some significant, many insignificant, some we're aware of, some we don't even realize. Many we get right, even more we get wrong. With some we please people and with others we disappoint or offend. Over and over and over, thousands upon thousands, we all make decisions. You've made many decisions already before even coming to this service. When the alarm clock goes off, do you snooze or do you get up? When you eventually get up, what do you wear today? What do you eat for breakfast? Do you even have breakfast? Which route do you take to get to church? When you get to church, where do you park? Where do you sit? Do I speak to this person or not? I've just made eye contact with them. I cannot remember their name. Shall I speak to them? Which snacks do I eat? You guys have really good snacks. We're coming back. (laughs) Which snacks do I have? Do I have coffee or juice? And so it goes on, thousands upon thousands of decisions. And then you get the more significant ones. Where do I go to college to study? Which subject do I study? Is she the one? Do I marry her? Do I take this job? Do I buy this house? Do I buy this car? Do we have kids? How many kids do we have? And then there are the even more significant decisions. You might call them the the life-changing decisions. You know, the sort that come and take you by surprise, that you're not seeking after that you're forced to make. The doctor looks you in the eyes and tells you the diagnosis of of cancer. What what do you do now? Or you receive the phone call and the loved one has been in the car crash on the five. And what do you do now? But friends, there is one decision which is more significant, which is more important than any other decision you will ever make. It is a decision which none of us can escape, which faces all of us every day, We all have to make it, and it is more important than any other decision in your life. It is the same decision that we find in our text today. As we zoom in to 1 Kings chapter 18, we find a divided people. We find a divided people, and Elijah is the man appointed to confront them with the same decision that you and I have to make, namely, will you follow after the one true God? 
Will you follow after the one true God? You see, the heyday of David is gone. The wisdom and the prosperity of Solomon are over. We're now into the divided kingdom, a kingdom that is rapidly going downhill. One bad decision after another from the kings. King Ahab is on the throne. King Ahab, Scripture says, did more evil in the sight of the Lord than any other king. And King Ahab is a Baal worshipper. He's a Baal worshipper. And as we so often see in Scripture, and as we so often see in society, the pattern is that the people are beginning to follow after their leader. So now the people of God are also Baal worshippers. Now they haven't turned their back completely on God, Yahweh, the true God. They're trying to do both. They're trying to engage in, in worship of him and worship of Baal. And this is the context in which Elijah confronts them and he says, will you follow after the one true God? It's the same decision that we have to face today, every day, regardless of who you are. This is not just a decision for unbelievers outside of the church, even in the church every day, and it affects everything. It affects your today and your tomorrow, the rest of your life, your eternity. So follow through the passage with me. I've divided it into three parts. First, we see the great decision. Elijah poses that challenge, the great decision. And then we see the great silence. As Elijah tries to help them make the right decision, we see the great silence and the truth that all Baal worship is futile. And then finally, we see the great God as God himself reveals who he really is and demands our complete obedience. Beginning then with the great decision, verse 20. Look down at your Bibles. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. And then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it and I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I will not put a fire under it. Then you will call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that is a good idea. So we need to back up a little bit in order to understand exactly what's going on here. The scenario is that there hadn't been a drop of rain in the land for three years. There's been a drought. In God's wisdom, he ordained that there would be no rain. And then, at the very beginning of chapter 18, God decides to bring rain. Verse 1. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, that is the third year of the drought, saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the face of the earth. But here's the problem. The people were engaged in Baal worship and Baal was the god of fertility, the storm god. So if God, the true God, just goes ahead and sends rain, then Baal gets the glory. It's him that they acknowledge for sending the rain. So before God can send rain, he instructs Elijah to confront Ahab. He sets up a competition, if you will, to show who is the real God. 
And when he has the people's obedience and allegiance and worship and glory, then he can send rain on the land. So that's the catalyst for this confrontation. Elijah obeys God's command, verse 19. Now then send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So he obeys the command of the Lord to gather the people together. He gathers them together on Mount Carmel, nearly 2,000 feet high, 30 miles along the Mediterranean shore. This would be a confrontation that would be on show. All the eyes of Israel would be on here. There was no hiding. This was on display in no uncertain way. And when he gets them all together up on Mount Carmel, he issues the challenge. And I love Elijah. He gets straight to the point. You know, my wife is often saying to me, you need to get better at small talk if you're going to be a pastor. And I admit, I'm awful at it, but I love Elijah. I read this and I think, Elijah's my kind of guy. There's no niceties, there's no small talk. He gets straight to it and he says, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? He says, how long, people of God, will you keep trying to do this? How long are you going to keep limping between Baal and God? The picture here, when he says hesitate, more literally limping, is a, you know, a guy with a, with a running shoe on one foot and a ski boot on the other. Or, or a running shoe on one foot and a ball and chain on the other. I mean, just pathetic. You can't achieve anything. And yet this is what the people of God are doing. Trying to give their worship to two gods. Elijah says, how long are you going to keep doing this? And then he says, and look at the theology in this statement. He says, if God is God, follow him. Elijah was a man who knew his theology. He said, if God is really God, then there is no option but to follow him completely. It's been said there's theological glue all over this. You can't separate that. If God is God, then you must follow him. And in reply, there was a silence. The people didn't like what they heard. There was an embarrassing silence. They knew this was the truth but they didn't like it. And, and the same is true for us. You know, deep down somewhere within us, we don't like hearing this and we want to scribble this out and change it. If God is God, then acknowledge him. If God is God, then pray a prayer and, and maybe church on Sunday and maybe even a Bible study midweek, but not change your life. If God is God, then you don't have to live a distinct, Christian, difficult life. We want to change this. Society wants to change this. There are churches that want to change this. And yet the message of the Bible, the message of Christ himself, is that if God is God, then you follow him. If God is God, you pick up your cross and you deny yourself and you follow him. If God is God, then you let the dead bury their own dead and you follow him. If God is God, then you put your hand to the plow and you don't look back and you follow him. If God is God, Scripture says you hate your own mother and father, you hate your own life, and you follow him, whatever the cost. God wants all of you. That was the message that Elijah put up front. There's no room for hesitating. There's no room for limping. There's no room for divided worship. Bonhoeffer got it right. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. John and Betty Stam, they understood. I was reading their account recently. They understood this. They were missionaries to China in 1931. Shortly after they were married, they went to a very dangerous area. There was much risk involved in their work, but they understood that if God is God, then you follow him. 
A few years after being there, they had Helen in 1934. And then three months after she was born, John and Betty were taken by communists. They were stripped, they were bound with rope. They were led through the streets, mocked out into the forest, in a scene that is strangely reminiscent of an account of a man from Nazareth. But they understood that if God is God, whatever the cost, and however that fleshes itself out in your life, you follow him. Which is why the account reads that John had a look of joy on his face as he knelt down in the grass. Helen was wrapped in a blanket hidden away somewhere with a $10 note stuffed in there in the hope that somebody would find her and care for her. And the swords flashed and they went to meet their saviour. Friends, before we go any further in the narrative today, before we look at anything else, the very first question is whether you have truly considered what it means to be a disciple of God. Whether you truly understand that if God is God, you follow him. Now, I'm sure that pretty much everyone here would say God is God. The question is not whether you're well taught and whether you know a lot of stuff, but whether you are willing to follow him. Elijah helps us make that decision. It was the great decision, whether you will follow after the one true God. And Elijah helps us by proposing a challenge. He says, look, we'll get an ox. You get an ox. You cut it up, put it on the altar. I'll do the same. No fire. You call out to your God. I'll call out to my God. And whoever answers with fire, he is the true God. And that leads us on to the great silence. Look at your Bibles, verse 25. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it. Prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar, which they made. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he is occupied or gone aside, or is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday was passed, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. So they're up on Mount Carmel, 450 prophets, Elijah, the people of Israel watching on. He's set the challenge. He's got straight to the point where you follow after the one true God, and they're up first. And I just want to draw your attention to the massive advantage that they had. We're on Mount Carmel. Now, I've already said this was where everyone would be watching. There was no hiding. But there's more to it than that. The record books tell us that Mount Carmel was a place that was set apart. It was sanctified. It was holy ground. And we say holy to what? Sanctified to what? To Baal worship. This was Baal's home turf. This is where he was worshipped. This was his ground, his stadium. So we're in his stadium. We've got the number advantage, 450 prophets of Baal versus one man, Elijah. 450 prophets, and note, finally, the effort that goes into summoning Baal. Verse 26, it says, 
they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. Picture it, 450 men screaming on the top of a mountain that God, their God, would answer them over and over. The text says there was no voice, no one answered. From morning until noon, hour after hour, and there was no answer. So Elijah steps in, and we love Elijah at this point. He mocks them. I think Ahab's thinking, just go away and leave us alone. But Elijah steps in and he, he mocks them. He says, call out with a loud voice. He says, call, call out. He says, because he's a God, right? He is a God. So just call out and he'll answer you. He says either he's occupied, literally he's gone to the men's room. Literally, he's gone to the men's room. He's gone aside. He's on a journey. Can you see how Elijah's reducing him down to a man? Or perhaps he's asleep. That is a far cry from the God who never slumbers and never sleeps. So what do they do? They respond. They cry all the louder. They begin to cut themselves. They bring their own swords upon their flesh until they gush with blood. Can you hear the desperation screaming from this narrative? If they can just get Baal to answer them. And now they're going till the evening until the evening sacrifice. So 450 men on Baal's home turf, screaming at the top of their voices, cutting themselves with swords, if they could just get Baal to answer them. And Baal answered them that day. And this is what he said. Can you hear the utter futility of Baal worship? Can you hear the great silence, the same silence in this room as we heard on Mount Carmel that day. The author says, no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. That threefold repetition, he's writing it for us in block capitals, putting an underline through it, circling around it in a highlighter. He's saying there's no one there. Baal doesn't exist. It's folly. It's futile. All your screaming out on his home turf, all the swords upon yourselves, it's futile. And we love it. We love it. We read this and we take joy in the fact that there was silence. We love the fact that there was egg on their face. But here's the rub. Here's the stone in your shoe and here's the splinter in your finger. Here's the ticking that will not go away. Everyone here today is a Baal worshipper. Every single person in this room is a Baal worshipper. Or let me put it another way. There is not a single person here who worships God perfectly. See, we're all prone to give ourselves to the worship of other things, things which aren't God. We're all prone to give our affections and our devotion and our allegiance to other things. We're all bell worshippers. Now, I get, I understand that it is not as blatant as this account here today. You know, it's not like we're up on Mount Carmel worshipping a different god in public that we can all see. The bales of our lives are far more subtle. They are far more dangerous. And they creep in unannounced. Like oil seeping through the cracks of our heart. Going largely unchecked. So that very easily we end up in some kind of silent worship of that which is not God. It's not like we're driving down Roscoe and we're struggling to decide, do we pull into the Buddhist temple or do we pull into grace? It's not as blatant as that. It's far more subtle. And if, you, if you're sitting there thinking, no, no, 
No, not me. I'm not a Baal worshiper. Look just at the symptoms of Baal worship. Can you see how the prophets worked themselves up into a frenzy? How they worked themselves into a stupor just so Baal could answer them? I mean, they were, they were trying to work as hard as they could to get a response from their God. This is Christianity on its head. We understand that we're saved by grace, and it's all by grace in the Christian life. Throughout the whole theme of the Bible, we see grace. We can't work and earn God's favor. We can't work to earn our salvation. And yet, as soon as we engage in Baal worship, in idolatry, like the prophets, we start to work if we could just get an answer from this thing that we're worshiping. And you can take your pick. I mean, they're, they're all around. You take the bale of money. We enjoy that bank balance. And when it goes up, we enjoy it a little more. And then before long, we're really enjoying it such that we're saying, if I could just work a little bit harder, if I could, if I could just cut my giving off here, no one would know. If I can just be a little less generous here, then the God of money would answer me and I'd be satisfied. You would never be satisfied with your bank balance. Or the God of sex. I mean, thousands of images everywhere, every day, coming in through our eyes, affecting who we are, changing the way we think. They are defining for us what we think is beautiful. And then they start to distort our behavior. So before long, we're saying, if I could just get rid of this extra pound, if I could just get rid of these wrinkles, then I'll look like them. You'll, you'll never look like them because those images aren't real. That will never satisfy. The God of comfort. Oh, what a scourge on the church today is the God of comfort. We surround ourselves with 56 different insurance policies so that as soon as we know a trial, we might steady the boat. We might never take a risk for the glory of God. If we could just live a comfortable life with a comfortable job and a big comfortable house and car, then we'll be satisfied. Those things will not answer you in the day of trouble. Those things, like Baal, will be strangely silent in the day of trouble. The list goes on. The Baal of success and the Baal of being accepted and liked, the Baal of family, the Baal of romance, the Baal of work, the Baal of stuff and things. We have so much clutter. The Baal of entertainment. We move, you know, we, we live our lives in front of screens today and we move from one screen to the next screen to the next screen if we could just be entertained and then I'll be satisfied, truly satisfied if I could just be entertained. Moving from one show to the next, one event to the next event, refusing to engage our God-given intellect, refusing to engage with God himself, refusing to acknowledge that it is only he that can satisfy both the mind and the emotions. The list goes on. We are all Baal worshippers. And every single one of them is empty, false. It will not satisfy. It will not deliver. It will control you. It will ruin you. They offer no comfort. It will cause you to be a double-minded person tossed about by every teaching and doctrine. And it will cause you to dishonor God. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Think about your day today and the choices you've had to make. How many involved consulting God, the one who made you? See, it's easy to complain about how terrible the world is, but aren't you and I acting like practicing atheists when we don't base our moment-to-moment -moment decisions on following the one true God through His Son, Jesus? If you'd like to learn more about how to follow the one true God, visit our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, timelesstruthtoday.org, on the homepage, select Broadcasts, 
for a treasury of gospel-centered content free for the listening. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. While you're on our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, would you consider making a financial gift to support this broadcast ministry? We reach thousands of hungry souls with the good news of Jesus Christ every day. Your donation of any size will help keep this outreach ministry going strong. It's timelesstruthtoday.org. Select Donation. Listen tomorrow for the conclusion in our short two-part series of Will You Follow the One True God? from Pastor Paul Twiss. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today. Today.